Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to me on the Catherine Zox Show on uh, VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. You can listen to us every Wednesday morning from 10 to 11 Eastern Time. And you can also listen to my new show, which is on Thursday mornings here in Albany, New York, WCDB-FM. It's an FM station. Uh, the Social Workers, and that's Thursday mornings at 9 o'clock Eastern Time. But this morning on our show, we have two guests. Two guests this morning. One is the author of a new book entitled Life and Loss in the Shadow of the Holocaust, which chronicles family letters during Nazi Germany. So we're going to be talking to um, the author of that book this morning, and also we have Uta Larkey, who's a professor at Goucher College in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, Our second guest is Terry Helwig. She's also an author and founder of the New Thread Project, One World, One Cloth. But her new book is a, a memoir entitled Moonlight on Linoleum. So stay tuned for her interview as well. But first, uh, we have uh, Professor Uda Larkey. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be on the show. Good morning, everybody. But, yeah. Now, the, the, the title of the book, Professor, Life and Loss in the Shadow of the Holocaust. Uh, first, uh, let's describe what is the book about and uh, what, what's the significance for all of us to read the book. So uh, it is a family history uh, that we uh, told, my course and I, uh, on the backdrop of uh, German and German Jewish history. Um, and uh, we have we have had the incredible fortune to work with uh, 600 letters that were sent to and from Nazi Germany. And uh, one person who wrote it from the United States uh, to Nazi Germany in the 30s she kept her uh, letters in carbon copies. So we have had the incredible, incredible uh, good fortune to have those two-way, basically the two-way correspondence. So So in other words, Professor, what we have is we have really a a tale of the Holocaust written uh, one family, and as I understand it, Mm -hmm. uh, Suzanne Austrin Rosenberg, she's a member of this family, and she found letters from her yes. mother, written to family relatives during the before, during, and after the war, I guess. That's um, right. So it's a first-hand account of what happened to this German-Jewish family. I'm very fascinated with this, and I wanted you on the show, first of all, because I'm a German Jew and have uh, gone to the Leo Beck Institute and, uh, you know, had a genealogy done, as a matter of fact, but mm-hmm. and uh, spent some time in Berlin at the Holocaust Museum. So I find this 
I mean, obviously, coming from that background, it's interesting to me. But before we begin, I mean, we've begun, but why should it be interesting to everybody else? Why do we need to know about this? Some people say, well, okay, it's behind us. The Holocaust is behind us. It's over. So why do we have to talk, you know, dig all this stuff up now? Why? What's it going to do for us? Well, I mean, uh, there was one famous quote by uh, William William Faulkner who says, um, the past is never dead, it never is even the past. And that is exactly, I think, the point we would try to make. Uh, First of all, uh, there is the family, uh, the family descendants still living on. So it is something that is very present in our times. And also it is uh, about the lessons we should learn from that time period. Uh, and these are very many, very many lessons, um, and uh, they are not always uh, adaptable to any time period. But one is, I think that what I would take away with it from it would be to really be very conscious uh, of our times, of our present, because at one point we will be history too. So uh, to really uh, get in touch with uh, what is going on in the world and uh, maybe we can make a change and maybe we can make a difference, even in a small way and even in our immediate environment. So, Professor, let's get really specific because I think this family, it tells the story of the, the social, the political, and all the economic policies at the time of the Third Reich. Yeah. Um, and so it's important for us to know that, obviously, that, that, that history. But let's talk about it specifically in the context of this family, of this German-Jewish family. And what was unique about the German Jews? Um, because I think there is something unique about German Jews that, that, um, that comes across in, in, this, in, this, um, in this tale. Yeah, I think it really uh, was a very, very uh, difficult time. Of course, uh, we all know that uh, German Jews were by and large uh, assimilated. Of course, not everybody, but the majority was, was living in, uh, assimilated in a very assimilated way. And then, uh, once the Nazi came into power, uh, Jews were uh, not able to work in the professions anymore. And this is actually, in this particular family, uh, what uh, happens that the, the young generation at this time, in their 20s, uh, had to leave uh, Germany because they just could not work in their uh, professions as a dentist and as a doctor and uh, then as a lawyer. So the lawyer could work in a Jewish organization, but he could not have his own practice. So I think that is uh, that is one uh, aspect. The other aspect is that the anti-Jewish measures that the Nazi uh, government put in place were so gradual in a way. So from 33 and, you know, one by one, and, you know, it was uh, noticeable, uh, but not necessarily for everybody in the full enormity of what was happening. And so one of the central questions for German Jews was at the time in the mid-30s to stay or to leave. And it's always a very hard decision to leave your home, so you really uh, must have very, very significant uh, reasons to do so. And uh, many of the young generation did leave, but many of the old generation, um, you know, they really had their deep roots in Germany, uh, and um, they also did not really have a, a bigger chance to go to another country because every country had quotas, and usually people over 40 uh, had a very hard time to uh, be able to immigrate. And, I mean, and this is, isn't this what one would, I, this is what I would expect any, I think, you know, the young people would be more 
flexible, more able to learn a new language, be able to, you know, they're healthier, they're stronger, all of those reasons, and haven't lived in the country for 50, 60 years. But I think what you mentioned, the insidiousness of the depriving people of their, of their jobs and uh, uh, their privileges, because oftentimes people say, well, why didn't the German Jews, why didn't they just get up and leave? Why did they stay? Yeah. And I, I think that kind of insidious nature of this happened over a you know, years and years uh, was obviously one of the reasons why people didn't leave. Yeah, they also thought that it would blow over, that Hitler could not last. Of course, you know, in 1935, you did not necessarily know, I mean, some people knew, but it was the absolute minority, that there might be another uh, world war coming. So uh, that really uh, was more kind of people live their day-to-day lives. And some uh, young people like... uh, one of the sons in this family, uh, he stayed because he wanted to take care of his older relatives. So uh, he stayed and he was there during the November pogrom and uh, he was uh, incarcerated for a short time in the concentration camp. So, But, you know, he could have left, but he said, no, I, I really feel obligated to my uh, mother, my aunt, and my uncle, and so he stayed behind. What stood out for you? I mean, you're a professor of Judaic studies, amongst so many other things. It would take me another 15 minutes to read your bio, <laughs> but we'll just leave it at that, Professor. Uh, but what's, what stood out for you in terms of this particular family? I mean, as you're writing this book and gathering the letters and the information, and I imagine talking to people as well. Well, what stood out was uh, that we really had... Uh, this enormous collection, and we could read letter collection, and we really could have a day by day account almost, and could really put ourselves into the uh, frame of mind of somebody in the 30s uh, trying to get out. And this family was, in a way, um, a typical family, but in another way, it also was not a typical family. It was a family. Uh, this family was led by the mother and her sister. So her the father uh, had died in 1933. Uh, he had been ill for many, 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 many years. And so it was primarily uh, two sisters that uh, were leading the family and it, uh, owned a business. They, they were one of the f- first business owners in the town of Essen where they, where they lived and raised the children. And the children collectively referred to their mother and aunt as our parents. So it was in this way a little bit uh, unusual uh, so also, we have looked at uh, the gender aspect of this family, and in another way, uh, this was also typical because uh, the children were, were deprived of um, finishing their degrees or working in their professions, and I think it gives a really um, very well-rounded look at uh, Jewish life at the time in Germany. So were these the first feminist women? Is that what... <laughs> I don't one of our, they were not the first, not the first women, but, but in their in their uh, environment, uh, there were not that many female business owners. It was they opened their shop in uh, 1902. And, and what they, was the shop? What was their business? It was a dry goods store. They uh, sold linens and handkerchiefs and sewing materials. And there were other uh, stores right next to each other, and uh, and then the Nazi headquarters moved in uh, next to them. And so they were also immediately confronted with, uh, you know, SS guards stationed in front of their store for intimidation. And so in 1936, they had to close the store. 
And once they closed the store, was that, and they made the decision to leave, was that it? They closed the store and then made plans to, to leave the country? Um, not yet. So uh, they closed the store, and um, then their son uh, primarily supported them. And also uh, there was an uncle who, uh, who also worked, and he... <clears throat> He financially contributed, and then, uh, but then the children uh, left. The first child left in thirty-five. The next child in thirty-eight. In June thirty-eight, and then as soon as the uh, second child has had left, and especially after uh, court, the son had left, then the family made uh, plans uh, for the old uh, women to join them in Palestine or the United States. So when they made plans to leave, and, and every, did everybody leave in a different way? I mean, you know, you hear the different stories about, I mean, some were, some at some point were, were legal, and you had people sponsoring you, I know, in the United States. My grandfather sponsored one of his cousins. But then there were the illegal, like, how did, you know, in this particular family, how, what were the different stories for people leaving? How did they leave? How did they get out? Well, uh, the son, uh, as I said, was uh, incarcerated in the concentration camp Buchenwald, and one of the ways at this point only in 1938, late 38, uh, to get out of the concentration camp for Jews was to provide papers for emigration. And uh, his colleagues in um, the Central Association for Jews in Germany had fabricated a letter for him that he uh, was that he could, sh- or that his fiancée could show the Gestapo saying that uh, his um, way out would be to Argentina, and he has the papers, and sh- he even has a chef passage. And so th- that was uh, what the Gestapo then believed and released him from the concentration camp. But since the letter was fabricated, uh, he really had to find out a way out of Germany in a very short time because he had a promise to be out by December 31st. And uh, then uh, that was really weeks of scrambling. And um, he and his fiancé could not find uh, anywhere to go. And so they went uh, several times to the British consul in Cologne. And the third time then when they went, uh, court the son then told the story of his uh, horrible experiences in the concentration camp. And then this British consul uh, gave, him the la- gave them the last tourist visa to the British Mandate of Palestine at the time. So uh, they left in January 39. And from then on, uh, they tried to get uh, mother and aunt out, but also uh, the sister in the United States tried to get mother and aunt out. Uh, Unfortunately, the war started uh, between um, Germany uh, and Great Britain as we know, in September 39. So Palestine was out of the question after, basically, after September 1st. And then the daughter in uh, the U.S. tried to get the old uh, women out, and it became more and more difficult. And it, and unfortunately, it never really happened. But I don't want to give away the end of the story, oh. but, <laughs> uh, but it was a very... Very tragic story. They even tried to go through Cuba and try to find a third country before they could enter the United States. But uh, it did not work as planned. Yeah. Well, at, at some point it became, as you say, 1938, 1939. Then it became too late um, for most Jews, I guess. I mean, had to have gotten out before then. Right. I mean, 39 and 40 even was still somewhat possible. But, for instance, in November 1941, 
uh, they still had hope, and um, the mother had actually everything together, her passport, her ship passage, I mean everything, uh, had paid all her taxes, everything was ready. There was just one minor detail that she did not have in hand, and this was the exit visa. And uh, But, uh, you know, in their mind, it would take a week or two to get the exit visa, and then another week or two to get the exit visa. But unbeknownst to them, at this time, there was a secret um, regulation in Nazi Germany that uh, put a stop to all uh, to hold all emigration out of uh, Germany for the duration of the war, and that was um, in October 1941. But nobody knew that, so that was not announced. No, when you say nobody knew that, it's interesting, and I'm, I'm kind of going back and forth from the 1930s to now and, and think about the information that we have on the Internet and, and, and Twitter and all the in Facebook, and it's almost impossible for that kind of a situation to occur again because of communication and information. Well, it? some information was known, for instance, uh, was known. So, uh, we, you know, when Jews had to turn in their um, jewelry and their valuables, so that was announced and everybody, everybody had to know that. But uh, to put a hold on emigration, uh, that was a very secretive thing that the Nazis did. So it really was um, just kind of an internal... Um, an internal uh, order to not let Jews out anymore. But that that part was not known. But many, 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 many other parts of the anti-Jewish measures were well known at the time. Did you do you now go back and forth? I assume to to Germany to Berlin um, today. I mean, as as part of of what you do and um, your connections there. Uh, yes, actually, I do take uh, students to Berlin once a year, um, and uh, and I also have uh, been many times at the Jewish Museum and at the Leo Beck Institute in Berlin, and uh, so and I follow uh, I follow what uh, what has become of that uh, history and how the Germans really uh, take up the legacy and uh, really try um, try to. Um, to, well, there, is, there never is a closure or reconciliation, but there are steps towards that end. That was, and, a, you know, uh, that's what I was going to ask you. Two things. First of all, you take students to Germany every year. Uh, like the, the react, these are American students. What is their reaction? And I am sure they have different kinds of reactions. You know, this is already what's the third generation, um, and their reaction number one, and then number two, the reaction of the of the German students. Of the, you know the you know of that generation of the germ of you know they're also third generation. Yeah, I, I think there is a tendency uh, to to not talk too much about the past uh, between those groups. I think that is what I what I notice. Uh, and uh, if at all, I think it is more the American students who would address it. Um, and uh, for many of the German students. Um, in Berlin, and also for many of the American students, it's a cosmopolitan city, and uh, the war happened a long time ago. And so I try to um, really go much deeper <laughs> with them and really uh, try to say, well, you know, it, where we are now would not have happened if certain things uh, would have not been addressed. Or uh, So uh, it is not, not that easy. 
But along that line, I also wanted to mention something else. Uh, as we speak, actually, uh, on this uh, Wednesday morning, the descendants of the family of, uh, of which we wrote, uh, these descendants are in Germany, the six cousins, with their families this week for the first time all together and for the first time all together in Germany. They come now from Chile, from the U.S., and uh, from Israel, and they had asked us as uh, authors if we would uh, want to join them on Sunday. So we are going, and this Sunday, we are going to see the descendants of their family all together in the town where their ancestors uh, were from. So that was an exciting uh, turn of events for us, and also I think, you know, many of their of their children are also in the third generation, and uh, how they respond to going back to Germany. So it's a different. It's different for the different generations. I think. Yeah, I was going to say you'll get all different kinds of responses. But are you saying, um, Professor Lockie, that there are? Did you say that there are uh, relatives who? remained in Germany who were still alive, who will be no, there? No, they just, this week, uh, they all meet, uh, they come from, uh, you know, from North America, South America, and Israel to Germany. There is, no, there is, unfortunately, nobody left in Germany of this family. But they wanted to trace their ancestors' steps, and the book was kind of a reason for them to uh, get together and to see each other for the first time altogether, and then to go to the different places where their ancestors have had lived and uh, had worked and, uh, and just visit the area. Do you think they will actually visit with people who live in the, if the houses or the apartments are still there? They're going to, they intend to try to go back to their homes? Um, well, the town of Essen was quite destroyed during yeah. the war, and this house does not stand anymore uh, where... Uh, the mother and the, and her sister had the business. So, but we on Sunday we all are going to go to the cemetery uh, where they all have grave gravestones there, uh, and so that is what a very emotional and uh, moving um, thing that we have planned. And uh, so we are very grateful that we can be part of that. So it will be about uh, I think uh, twenty relatives uh, coming coming to Germany. That's going to be a, a I, I don't know what, I mean, it's going to be, interesting is probably an understatement, but it'll be, yeah, and yeah. also to see, are you, do you know many, do you know that you, I know that the family from, from Israel and from Argentina, and are you familiar with all of these people now, or this is the first time you're going to meet with many of them? No, actually, we, uh, we have done interviews with uh, almost all of them, yeah. Uh, so I went to uh, Tel Aviv and interviewed two of the cousins. We both interviewed two in the United States. So uh, we have uh, met almost everyone before. So, uh, but uh, but never together, and they've never met together. So that is the ex very exciting part. Well, have any of them met each other at all, or some have met at, you know on different occasions, but nobody all together has. Right, they met yeah. on different occasions, but not not ever everybody together. So. That is uh, th their first time, and they've decided to do to connect this with a trip through their uh, ancestral um, villages and towns. Why now? Why now did they decide to do it? Because of the book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the book brought so much up for them. I think that they now really decided 
And, you know, many of them are also, you know, I mean, the oldest is 70. I mean, they're not old, but uh, I think at an age where they also wanted to show their children and their grandchildren uh, where their roots were, where the, where the roots of the family were. And this family had lived in Germany for all, all, way over 300 years. What's the, you know, over 300 years, and I, and I think... Uh, I know my family was in that situation, too, and decided to leave. All of them left, as far as I know, most of them. Uh, but um, it, anger, resentment, I mean, those kinds of emotions. I mean, do you see a lot of that when you did your interviews or um, or not? Um, not? Not really that much uh, resentment and anger. I mean, uh, some... Uh, I think some regrets, um, but not of this generation with whom I did the interviews, but uh, they had regrets for their parents, uh, that their parents uh, were not able to see each other more often or that it was not possible for them to uh, get their grandmother out. Uh, so, yeah, so there, and every one of those six uh, cousins reacts differently, so there are different reactions, but... Uh, but by and large, it really is also the willingness and the openness to search for their for their history, and to also, uh, yeah, to have to bemoan that what happened. That a family that, I mean, that is also my perspective. A family had, who had lived in you know fairly close together for three hundred years now is spread over three continents. So uh, there is a certain uh, sadness to that too. Yeah, there is to me. There's a certain sadness about that, but then there's also that kind of that resiliency of the yes. human spirit. I mean, we're just, because yes. that's how we are able to evolve and be where we are today. To be able to go beyond that, and um, it, it seems to me that that's also what your book is about. Yes, absolutely, uh, and and I think that is also uh, what came through in the in the interviews that we had with the cousins. So uh, this resilience, and we are proud who we are, and we are very thankful who we were uh, able to become. I think that is a definite uh, sentiment that runs through all of them. What about, because we have a few, just a few minutes left, what mm-hmm. about any surprises for you? Obviously, you had some expectations when you, start, when you co-authored this book, I'm sure, and your own perspective, like you said. Any big surprises from any of the interviewees, something that you didn't expect? Um, well, with one of the uh, cousins in Tel Aviv, uh, I interviewed him in 2006, and um, and he was very, very uh, wonderful and uh, welcomed me in his home and this and that. And then uh, he gave a wonderful interview, but then he also at one point said, well, but I have my own life and this is old history. And then four years later, I am invited again to his house, and there I see a huge, huge, huge collage that he made out of those letters. And that that touched me so much, I, I just can't tell you. And so then at that moment I decided that has to be part of our book cover, and it became part of our book cover. So uh, he made a collage, uh, his name is Gideon Seller, and he made a collage about nine feet by two feet, huge, huge collage where he ripped the letters apart and photographed them and then um, treated them with different color, and it it really reads from uh, lightness to darkness, and um, and he used his grandmother's letters for 
for this collage, and it touched me really, really deeply. So that is something I did not see coming. <laughs> and uh, so I think the effect also uh, the, that the book and the interviews had on this generation, um, you know, our contemporaries, that touched me very deeply. So I don't think I was prepared for that. And well, what, I, what I'd like to do is also just spend a couple minutes telling our listeners uh, if they obviously they can buy the book at uh, online bookstores everywhere, and where can they go for more information about you about the book? And um, it sounds like this may be some kind of an ongoing project as well. <laughs> yeah, could well be. Could well be. Um, I think the best would be to go to www.cambridge.org. Uh, that would be the uh, publisher's website, and then uh, type in Life and Loss and the Shadow of the Holocaust or my name, Utalaki. And then when the book comes up, uh, on, there is a blog on the lower right, and there are three videos uh, that we did. These are three um, YouTube videos. Uh, my co-author and Sue, who found the letters here in Maryland, uh, my co-author and I talking, and uh, getting the artist and I talking about the making of the book cover. Oh, terrific. Okay, great. So that's three videos so, on YouTube Yes, the book. Um, and we can buy the book. Can we buy it at Amazon.com? Yeah, Amazon has it and Cambridge.org has it too and Barnes & Noble uh, has it too. So uh, there are many different ways to get to get the book. And, and when you get the book... Look at the cover and remember uh, Gideon's artwork because I think that is a fabulous, fabulous uh, collage he did. Fantastic. It's been great talking to you today, and uh, I understand you're going to, what, tomorrow? That's when you're going to fly to Germany, so you have yes. this, yeah, that's <laughs> an exciting <laughs> reunion. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you'll hear even more amazing stories from everybody else then also. But Life and Loss in the Shadow of the Holocaust, and um, thanks so much, Professor Udalarki, Associate Professor of German Studies and Affiliate Faculty of the Judaic Studies Program at Goucher College in Baltimore, Maryland. And Have a safe trip. Thank you so very much for the opportunity. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Coming up next is Terry Helwig. She also has an inspiring story, uh, and she is the author of a new memoir called Moonlight on Linoleum and founder of the New Thread Project. Find out what that is in a minute. Don't go away. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, and I'm your social worker with a microphone this morning. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com, World Talk Radio. Listen to us every Wednesday mornings from 10 to 11 Eastern Time live, and you can also listen to our, our shows are archived on VoiceAmericaVariety.com. And my new show, I have another show on Thursday mornings at uh, 9 o'clock on WCDB, an FM station in Albany, New York, and uh, we're called The Social Workers, so you can listen to that too live on uh, Thursday mornings and uh, also on the net and also archived. But my next guest, uh, founder of the New Thread Project, One World, One Cloth, Terry Helwig, um, is and also has written a new book. It's a memoir called Moonlight on Linoleum. So we're here to talk to Terry about her book and about her project, New Thread Project. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Terry. Thank you, Catherine. It's great to be with you. I and used we're to live in the Schenectady, Albany area many years ago, so I'm very familiar with uh, you know that area. Well, it's beautiful. It's beautiful right now because you know we have all the leaves changing and it's gorgeous and it's warm and um, you know another month it'll be cold and snowy. But anyway, yes, I love the <laughs> fall there. Yeah, exactly. So, Tara, you do. Fast, interesting things. You've had an interesting life to begin with, and I think obviously I, I don't. You know, I, I sort of wrote down the things I wanted to talk to you about. But um, uh, your experience, your experiences growing up, obviously impacted on your new thread project and also your memoir. So um, why don't we start with just telling us about yourself and you know how your life experiences got you to the point where you. You started this project, and you also wrote your memoir. Okay. Well, uh, I was the oldest of six girls, and we spent most of our time in the what I call the big sky country of the American Southwest. It was in West Texas and Colorado. And um, my mom married very young, and married a number of times, but I had a... Well, when you say very young, like a teenager, you mean? She married when she was 14 years old, and she had me when she was 15. And uh, by the time she was 16, she had my sister and was divorced at 17. And that started us on quite a uh, whirlwind tour, you might say, of life. <laughs> a 15-year-old uh, mother, amazing. I mean, It really is. And uh, she was no more than a child herself, and she lived on a farm in Iowa. And just the, the rigors of farm life, and she also had a difficult childhood. So, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, that gets passed from generation to generation. And it seemed as though she was always looking for something that she couldn't find. Can I, I just have to stop you because a 15-year-old mother, what's that like? Uh, to have a mom, I mean, sometimes she felt more like a sister than she did a mother because she was so young. And um, by the time she was 27, she was taking care of six children and had three divorces. So as the oldest child, a lot of responsibility consequently fell to me. So you were like almost uh, co-mothering, it yes, sounds like? Yes, I, was, I yeah. was pretty much a surrogate mother uh, because, you know, my mom was very tr- uh, troubled, and so she, she struggled with motherhood and marriage, and towards 
by the time I was in fifth grade, she was also struggling with addiction to prescription drugs and, um, you know, sobriety. And yeah. so that left a lot of the care of the, of my younger sisters to me. And in the book, I, I explore that relationship with my mom. The subtitle of Moonlight on Linoleum is A Daughter's Memoir. And so I explore that relationship with my mother because I loved my mom deeply and dearly. But I, And I so wanted, it's like I saw her potential. She was creative, um, but she was just troubled, and her life seemed to spiral downwards, and I was trying to understand her and that struggle. And then in the process also developed, naturally, a very close bond with my sisters, not only as an older sister, but as a caretaker. And so... Um, you know, that, I would say that was the, the main themes of the memoir that I wrote about that. So uh, this book, I mean, um, how long did it take you to write? I'm, I'm going to ask you how old you are. <laughs> you oh, that, I do not mind saying at all. I am now 62 years old. My mom died when I was 25. And the book um, opens when I am going back to, uh, it's the prologue, and I'm 40 years old, and I am going back the first time to the cemetery since I've, since she was buried there, and so the, the time span has been 15 years, and I realize when I go to that cemetery, I don't remember where she was buried because it was 15 years ago, and so I go to the caretaker's office, and I ask him if he can help me find my mother's grave, and he goes, yes, what was her last name? And I went, Oh, my gosh. <laughs> she had been married six times, and I was not sure what name she was buried under. And so that just said so much, of course, to me and about our life. And, you know, he, I kept throwing out these names, and he's looking up, and finally we, we, we got the right one, and he took me to her grave. But I, that is when, at that age of 40, that I really started reflecting back on my life and my choices. I had my own daughter by that time, and uh, you know, so that propelled me into it. But I didn't write it until just a few years ago. Even yeah, and though. that was my question. You just you wrote it when you were approaching sixty, I guess. Yes. And, when um, why that time? I mean, does it take that? I mean, I, I always wonder. Um, I mean, for, well, this is obviously unique to you, but why it took all of that time, or is there just a lot of things that kind of come together that it's like emotionally it's time for you to to write your story or yeah you know there were several reasons in there and certainly one of them is i had spent the those first 40 years of my life i, I felt like on keeping the outside world together. And when I was 40, I started poking around on the inside world. And so that takes a while to go inside, and and that is when I went back to school as an adult. I mean, I was going to school, but I decided to get my master's in psychology. And I know part of that was to try to understand the the uh, dynamics that went on in the family and some of what made up my mom and that inner realm fascinated me. So in essence, I sort of had to live those years going through that information, it seemed like. 
You know, and, it's interesting. You've got a master's in counseling psychology. I have a master's in counseling psychology, too. Uh, you know, I, it's, you know, if one looked at your history and, and as a psychologist, for instance, or an educator, and you'd say, well, here, you know, you had a mother who was married six times. She had an addiction problem. You had to be the mother and raise your sisters. That you would turn out to be very similar uh, to her, but that didn't happen. I, I'm, I'm always, why? What is it about you? Because you said, you know, you were, for right. 40 years you worked just keeping the external together, and yeah. then finally, okay, I have to now work on my inside stuff, as you said, but what made you different? Well, that's part of the reason I wrote the book, uh, because people would say just what you've said if they found out part of my history. They'd go, but you seem so normal. And I still think my sisters would go, well, you know. <laughs> Not <laughs> but, that normal. <laughs> but, you know, I, and I don't know if I have a definitive answer for that. I, um, and that's part of the reason I wrote the book and the story. It's like, well, here is what it was like to be in my skin and the reason that I turned out the way I did because you get to see the world as I saw it through my eyes. But also, for some reason, I always believed inside, and I do not know where it came from, that my life could be different. And I do know that children are incredibly resilient. Uh, You know, there is a natural resiliency in us. I mean, even look at a baby learning to walk. They get up, they fall down, they get up, they fall down, but it never occurs to that child that they won't learn to walk. Now, what happens, I think, is that sometimes that resiliency that a child has does get compromised for one reason or another, and sometimes it can be the same situation in two different people, and one of them will end up believing that they can't learn to walk or they don't learn to walk, and the other one just keeps thinking, you know, I just thought when I can make the decisions for myself, then I'm going to make different decisions. And so I, and as I grew up and got older, I thought, well, our past does not have to define us, and we do not have to be a hostage to our life story. I think one of the key sentences that's on the book jacket is, even if others abandon you, you must never abandon yourself. And that last part is the only choice that we really have. We can't choose necessarily, and especially as children, what happens to us. But we can, if we hold on to that, choose not to abandon ourselves. And so that's the best way that I can ex- explain that. So, and then you also asked about, okay, sort of the defining moment that I decided to write the book. My sisters and I are adults. We have a great relationship we gather for family reunions and we're in the kitchen and cooking up the big pot of spaghetti or fudge or whatever it is that we make. And I stepped back and I just looked at us laughing and carrying on and I thought, you know, I'm really proud of us for being who we are and I don't know if it's because of our childhood or in spite of our childhood, but for sure my mom, our mom, gave us the gift of each other. And I just decided it was time to write about that gift and this young mother who gave six little girls to each other. That's what you talked about the the, yeah, the gift of each other and um, all of you. Did all of your sisters make this? I'm sure, obviously, different choices, but as were there choices as. Um, as positive as the ones that you made? I mean, did you all turn out well? Different and unique, but 
Yes, we've all, um, I, I will say everybody took a different path to where they are now, and certainly there were stumbles along the way. But right, you know, now they're all highly functioning in families and, and leading very good lives. I'm really proud of these women. When I decided to write this book, I knew I couldn't just tell my story. I had to also tell their story because they were part of it, and they hadn't signed on for it, you know. But they agreed to go on a research trip with me through Texas to some of the oil towns where we lived. And we rented a van and drove 1,200 miles and visited these towns and the places where we camped and our favorite trees. And every sentence out of our mouth was, remember when, remember when. But it was just a great retrospective to see where we came from and where we were now. And basically all of us said, we're happy with where we are now. And if the only way to get to where we are now was to go through it again, then we would. Maybe it's in the genes. Part of it is. <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, it's a lot of different uh, combination, but, um, I mean, the book is inspirational. It really is. And, um, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people, will, you will have uh, have an effect, a positive effect on their lives because, boy, there's, you know, many people are, especially today, I think, you know, with what's happening in the economy and all kinds of things, you know, in, in feeling uh, have feelings of despair or depressed or thinking that they can't get ahead. And, you know, so when you write books like this, it's always, it's really inspiring for everybody anyway. But, and that's not the only thing you've done, uh, <laughs> <laughs> amongst many other things, but the New Thread Project, I'm fascinated with that. Tell us what is the New Thread Project. What is that? Okay. Uh, it is. It's actually not so new now because it is 10 years old, but it was in response to 9-11. And again, it was speaking to one thing that I have always been, and I do think it is in my genes, is an optimist. I just have always believed that you, you can't do anything unless you hope for something, hope for something better, whether it happens or not. But that, that hope at least sets the vision for it. But I'll have to say, the night of 9-11, I felt great despair for our world. And as you're saying, so much is going on in the world, and it's so hard to hang on, on to hope. And so I felt like we're hanging by a thread. And then I just wondered, like 9-11 had put this huge gaping hole into the fabric of our society, and if we're hanging by a thread. And I thought, I wonder what would happen if I just asked people from around the world to send something as simple and inconsequential as a thread. What could happen if that's all the hope you had was one thread of hope and you joined it with everybody else's thread? What, what could you do? So via the Internet, which is we call the World Wide Web, you know, um, people began sending me threads from all around the world. I got them from every continent, even a couple of them from Antarctica. But, Terry, you actually got a little piece of thread, like the thread that you sew a button on with in an envelope sent to you? Yeah, some of those were like an envelope sent to me, but people got so creative and they began to, they, they might have a gathering, and then people started donating fibers that had more meaning than just a little piece of thread that would sew on a button. Like somebody would send me some fishing line where they had 
caught this fish or they love to be out in nature. Um, somebody might have died. I remember this woman, and she sent her mother's slip, and she had written all the names of her, that mother's children on it. We received some threads from 9-11 families from clothing of people who had been killed. Somebody found a fiber in the killing fields of Cambodia and sent it to us. Somebody sent something that lepers had woven in one of Mother Teresa's leper colonies. And so these stories started in you know, being inside of these threads. And so everything started coming, all kinds of fibers. I mean, we have animal fur and bamboo and feathers. and <laughs> So it, it is some of the most diverse cloth that's ever been woven. We, we tied that together. I found 49 weavers around the world that would set up their looms, and we had looms on the hillside in Israel and in Greece and in Guatemala and... Australia, and these women were weaving these threads that came in from all around the world. I, would, I was the central, send them to me, we'll tie them together. Then I would send them to weavers, and then they sent the panels back to me. We ended up with 49 panels, um, tapestries, and some of those have hung in the United Nations. Uh, they were at St. Paul's Chapel for the five-year anniversary of 9-11, and St. Paul's is the church that was right across from Ground Zero and where they sort of headquartered the rescue efforts for Ground Zero. And so that was there for the five-year anniversary. And now the, the clause on the 10-year anniversary, I, you know, spoke again about what that has meant the, the, um, the past 10 years. And the, the clause are being displayed in Independence, Missouri. But in 2012, this coming year, I hope to find permanent home for them in places that promote tolerance, celebrate diversity, and encourage compassionate communities. And where are those places? I don't know. I am taking <laughs> applications on my website, Terry. I mean, that's uh, that. I have two websites, one okay. for the book and one for the Thread Project. Well, let's talk about both of them. Give the book one and then tell us where we, if we have, what, suggestions or if we, or we are applying for the place that... Um, could we have an organization that, um, you know, ha is similar to the, the mission of the Thread Project, and we will be considering those. And you can also see a picture of the clause right on the uh, homepage. And there's stories about them. I mean, the Thread, the, the website is so deep with, as, as much as you want to find out about it, you could probably spend a couple of days there. And then... Um, do you want me just to tell the website for my book as well? Yeah, for okay. both. For the book, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's Terry, and that's with a Y, um, terryhelwig.com. And on that, I have different things about the book. An excerpt tells you why I wrote it. For book clubs, there's a discussion question section. But I also have a picture of my sisters and that uh, talk about that tour that we took through West Texas. Um, one of my sisters made up T-shirts, and we're all in them, and it said the girls come back to her. <laughs> so, and I don't know if I mentioned, we lived for many years in a 500-square-foot trailer, our family, the eight of us, and just rolled into one oil town after another. So, you know, it, it, was, it was a unique childhood, to say the least. And, and look where it brought you to, where you, I mean... <laughs> 
It's, it's an, yeah. Yeah. Well, what a story. I mean, you've got a lot. We'll talk about, you have lots of threads woven together. And I guess I just want to repeat that one thing that you said, you know, hanging by a thread that maybe that's all we need. I mean, we, and uh, as long as we have that thread to hang by, I guess. And um, because you also, as I understand it, wrote a play. Yes. Uh, called The Thread Narratives. Right. The now, thread is that something that's currently being um, shown or that you, or, or what? Well, I, I mainly wrote that for um, the gallery opening with The Thread Project. And, again, I was saying there were all of these stories and these quads, and you look at these quads and they're so interesting, but I wanted you to hear them, hear the, the the heart and soul that people had put in and that people were sending me these wonderful, wonderful letters and there was no way to get this information out. And so through the play, I co-wrote it with a, an actress, Carol Anderson, and we were able to give the voice to the clause. And so certainly anybody could do that play that wanted to. Um, and if, if they had the clause, that could be a good way to tell the stories. But I, I've always had a writer in me, I think, and uh, that's the direction that I uh, hope to continue to go. Well, it doesn't sound like you're about to stop now, and that's that's a good thing. (laughs) Hopefully not, as long as these fingers keep working, right? (laughs) I I thank you so much. I just want to mention the website again. It's the Thread Project or threadproject.com, that's about the Thread Project specifically, and then you have your website, terryhelwig.com, Terry with a Y, H-E-L-W-I-G. So there's lots of information about you and what you're doing, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot more stuff. But thanks so much for being on the show this morning, Terry. Oh, thank you, Catherine. It's been a delight to talk with you, and enjoy that fall weather. Don't worry, I will. Okay. (laughs) All right. Have a good day. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah. Well, it was a pleasure to talk to Terry, Terry Helwig, author of uh, uh, The Moonlight on Linoleum. Um, and uh, we're going to have to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com, World Talk Radio. Listen to us every Wednesday morning at uh, 10 o'clock Eastern. Hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.